have your seat and we come to the preaching of God's Word, which is in Luke 21, verses 5, or verses 5 and 6. Luke 21, verses 5 and 6. These two words are parallel to what we read earlier from Mark 13. You can also find another parallel in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24. But for the sake of our own text, here then, verses 5, and we'll read onward through verse 9 for some context. Luke 21, 5 through 9. And as some spake of the temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts, he said, As for these things which ye behold, the days will come, in the which there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And they asked him, saying, Master, but when shall these things be? And what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? And he said, Take heed that ye be not deceived. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ. And the time draweth near. Go ye not therefore after them. But when ye shall hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified. For these things must first come. But the end is not by and by. Thus far, God's Word. It's particularly verses 5 and 6 that we give our attention to this morning. And so you'll notice Luke records that some spake. So some are mentioned as coming to Christ and saying, look. And what is it they're saying to look at? It's look at the temple. Some spake of the temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts. And so it's helpful for us to remember that there was such a building as the temple. This shouldn't be news to us, of course, because it's an emphasis in the Old Testament. We know of the tabernacle, which was a tent that was uh, displaying, as it were, God's presence with the people of Israel and all of the various ceremonies and furniture that were in the temple or the tabernacle, which was then later translated to the physical and stable building, the temple. And so here, the disciples, we find, are the ones pointing out to Christ, saying, look at this. And there is indeed a magnificence to it. We need to remember, this is not Solomon's temple, though some of the stones would have still been around. But this is Herod's temple, which, though lesser in magnificence compared to Solomon's temple, was nonetheless still a beautiful and majestic thing. So the text holds two things before us. Firstly, an observation which is by some here noted. But Matthew records that it's his disciples. So it's not strangers, it's not enemies, it's those who are among him. And specifically, one seems to have been the mouthpiece, as Mark Mark 13 indicates. They come and they say, look at this, behold, wonder at it. And notice even in our text, what they're speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones. Now all of us, have some attraction to beauty. Beauty necessarily attracts. Now, our minds are influenced by sin, and so it warps our perception of beauty so that men can now look at something that is uh, undeniably unworthy of their attention and delight and call it beautiful, and can look at other things that are most certainly beautiful and call it ugly. So, there are men, believe it or not, who can look at the sunset and say it's ugly. And there are others who can look at Uh, the beauty of a spring morning, and say it's uh, despicable. And yet this is because sin has influenced the mind. Well, notice here, there's an attention to something beautiful. It's the temple. But notice what about the temple captures their attention. 
They observe the goodly stones and gifts. So this would include the stones themselves of the temple. And there's sometimes, even today, we look at magnificent architecture and we step back and say, look at that. And consider the exacting detail and the beauty and the symmetry and the diversity and yet the unity of the whole structure. And it strikes us as beautiful. But they also see the gifts that are being brought and devoted to the service of God. And they say, look at this. Isn't this wonderful? And so something to note is their observation is about the outward things and not about the significance of the temple or the gifts. And this is a little bit of a whisper, if not a full-blown alarm, saying something's off. Notice Christ's response. He says, as for these things, this is the second thing in the text, his response, which ye behold, the days will come in the which there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, we read elsewhere that this is joined with Daniel, which we read earlier, Daniel chapter 9. And it seems that the disciples pick up on this because they ask, when will this be? And so they have some familiarity with it because they would have been familiar with the prophecy of Daniel. And so they perceive that Christ is getting towards something earlier prophesied. And yet what Christ is doing is He's not only pointing that out, but He's challenging their attraction to something that's merely outward instead of that significance of what the temple held forth and the blessings that would flow forth when the temple would be brought low because of what preceded it, namely Christ's death. So we want to look this morning at how the temple stood as a shadow and as a temporary shadow of better things to come. To do that, we'll simply notice by way of observation that Christ takes it as a matter of fact. This is going to happen. This building, which was built and constructed according to God's uh, commandment, is going to be destroyed. You know, the Scriptures tell us this isn't accidental. It's not just a circumstance of history. It's an inbuilt purpose of God Himself. So we'll look at three things then. Firstly, the message of the temple, the removal of the temple, and the substance or the main thing of the temple. So firstly then, the message of the temple. Now children, sometimes you'll hear Christians talk about, and it's something we should push against, they'll talk about the building wherein we meet as the sanctuary. But it's not the sanctuary. A sanctuary is a holy place. And so it's become commonplace, even for evangelical Christians, to speak of the main building or main room of worship as the sanctuary. Oh, where did you leave that? I left it in the sanctuary. But because words are important, we need to be mindful that that's not true. The sanctuary biblically refers to the holy place, the temple, the tabernacle. And so we can speak about the place of worship, we can speak about the meeting room, we can speak about the assembly room, we can speak about the room and so on, or even the building, the church building and what have you. But sanctuary is reserved for the holy place and the most holy place. Now, why was the temple a holy place? The answer is because the message of the temple is preeminently not about the temple, but about the God who manifested His presence in the temple. The message of the temple first is that there is a holy God. So think of this for a moment. In Exodus 25, the 
precursor to the temple is the tabernacle, the tent, the temporary dwelling place that was movable. The temple, you'll remember, was not built until after David, when Solomon was king, and it was built at a time when Israel was established and in a season of great stability and peace. The tabernacle, however, is that which precedes the temple. And notice what's mentioned in Exodus 25 and verse 8. He says, this is God to Moses, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. This is an important text for a variety of reasons, not least of which is notice the use of sanctuary. Let them make for me a holy place. Now children, you should know this by now. When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, what did he hear the angels crying out to God? It was holy, holy, holy. And who is it that is perfectly holy? It's the Lord God of hosts. God Himself, who is most holy. The same God who is here speaking to Moses and through Moses to the rest of Israel. And when Moses would carry down the instructions and say, this is what we're to build, this sanctuary, this tabernacle, so that there would be a holy place for whom? For a holy God. So notice fundamentally, the tabernacle and thus the temple is consequential to what is more essential, namely God Himself. So the message is not about the building itself, but about the one who would manifest His presence in the building. And so in the time of the journeying, they would have looked at the tabernacle, and you could say, well, whose tent is that? Now, we live in houses and buildings today, but in the time of the wilderness, they had each family a tent that they would tear down, and then they would set up. And sometimes this would happen rapidly, other times they'd be established for a season. And you can imagine children running around outside of the camp and looking down, and one of the fellow Jewish children asking you, well, which tent is yours? And you'd say, well, see that one over there. And they'd say, yeah, well, that's my temple, or that's my tent. That's where my family dwells. But then in the very center of the whole encampment would have been one that stood out as altogether majestic. And perhaps a child may not have been well instructed and said, well, whose tent of dwelling is that one? The one in the center that everything else radiates around. Who is, whose place is that one where the priests are going in and coming out? Whose tent, whose dwelling place is that? And if you were well instructed, you would have been able to say, well, that's Jehovah's place. That's his tent. That's where he dwells. And so the significance of the tent and then the building, the temple, is not the building itself, but fundamentally the one who dwells in it, who is most holy. Now this is impressive because with whom is he dwelling? He's dwelling with a people who are descendants of Adam, who themselves have been conceived in sin and who themselves have sinned. And so you know by now that oil and water don't mix. They can't be joined together. You can swirl it up, you can get it spinning around and circulating, but it never actually blends with one another. So as soon as the motion stops, the oil and water separate because they're incompatible to be joined together. Well, this is a small picture of holiness and sin. Holiness and sin don't mix. 
And so a wonder here is the message of the temple is not just of a holy God, but a gracious God, a God who is most holy, who is willing to dwell with a people whom he's called on several occasions, stiff-necked, hard-hearted, and have re- has recorded their sins. So what's this temple testifying? It's testifying both of his holiness and of his grace. Now think of what took place in the temple. There were, of course, there were two main rooms. There was the most holy place, where only the high priest went in on one time a year. And then there was the holy place, where you had various other pieces of furniture, the table of showbread, and other such things, which the priests ministered to daily. Outside in the court, you had the altar and uh, the laver of water, of washing, and the priests were milling about doing all of this work. What's going on? Well, it's testifying as well, isn't it, that God's grace is nonetheless in accordance to His justice. Because what would have happened in the courtyard of both the tabernacle and the temple? Animals would have been sacrificed and offered up. So children, go back to this idea. There you are in the encampment of Moses' day and you have your uh, tabern- your own tent somewhere in the camp and you have all of your families around you and then you can see as far as your eye stretches row after row after row after row of different tents. But in the middle... There's Jehovah's tabernacle. And there coming up is, of course, the pillar of cloud by day and pillar of light by night. And there as well is the incense being offered and the sacrifices being offered and smoke going up. And you would have been drawn to consider that and doubtlessly would have asked, why? Why is there so much of this going on? Or if you lived in the days of Jesus Christ and of His first disciples, you would have known the temple in all of its magnificence was yet the center of worship. And not just the synagogue worship that took place every Lord's Day, but the significance of the ceremonial where sacrifices are being offered regularly. And you with your families would have gone up even if you didn't live in Jerusalem. And there you would have seen your parents offering sacrifice. All of this would have taken place testifying again of a holy God who is willing to dwell with a people, but in terms of grace. What kind of grace? A grace which answers our sins and does so by means of a substitute. So you have the high priest, you have the sacrifices, both of which are indicating to us that there is a need for a mediator and one to answer for our sins. So the message of the temple is quite clear. A holy God, a gracious God, who will dwell with His people by means of a substitute. Think again of Exodus 25 and verse 8. Make a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. If we have extended family that live away from us, it can be an exciting time when they come to visit. And we wonder, how long are they going to be? Are they going to be a day, two days, a week, whatever? And we plan out that time. And we think, oh, we'll go here, we'll eat there, we'll do this meal, we'll do that uh, occasion, and so on. So all of this is exciting because someone special to us is coming to visit. But notice what God doesn't say. He doesn't say, build the tabernacle and later the temple so that I may visit them, but that I may dwell, live, abide with them. Now, all of this is setting us up to understand something of the significance of the temple's destruction. 
But simply notice for a moment that the message of both the tabernacle and the temple is that this holy and gracious God has a desire to dwell with His people, to be with His people. Now when we step back and consider what's the significance then of this great structure known as the temple and all of its beauty, Solomon's temple was an ancient wonder, a wonder of the ancient world. All of its glory, even Herod's temple, was something spectacular. But wherein truly lies the wonder of the temple? It's not in the outward stones. It's not in the gifts that were offered. It's not in the beauty and the symmetry and the unity and the parts and all of these different features of the building. It's rather in the message to which it was pointing. God of heaven and earth is a God most holy and yet most desiring to dwell with us in terms of grace, reconciling Himself to us by means of a priestly sacrifice. All of this is most clearly testified again and again throughout the Scriptures. So keep that in your mind. The temple is not magnificent because of its outward glory, but because of the message regarding the One who dwells there. Secondly then, the removal of the temple. We saw that its destruction was earlier foretold. Daniel chapter 9. It says, The Messiah shall be cut off, not for Himself, verse 26, and that the people of the prince, the people of this king that's coming, shall destroy the city and what? And the sanctuary. So it's not just this general destruction of the city that's noted, that is, but it's specifically identifying the overthrow of the temple. The sanctuary will be destroyed. That should raise questions immediately. Wait! If the temple is destroyed, what then of the message of the temple? Think of false gods and their temples. And for instance, the scriptures make much of this. You know, they're made of wood and of gold and precious metals. And you think of, for instance, when it was that uh, um, Gideon was named Jerubbaal, right? Let Baal plead. Why? Because Gideon destroyed the idols. He cast them down. And his father, who's receiving these who say, let your son be put to death because he's put to death these idols, he says, what are you talking about? If Baal's so significant, let him then put my son to death. But he's just rid us of idolatry. And so let Baal plead this false god. What's the point? The temples of false gods are indeed beautifully ornate, but they have no real message of hope, because they're all founded upon a lie. But the temple of the true God is ordained according to God's Word to testify of His holiness, of His grace, of His desire to commune, of the way of acceptance, of the way of reconciliation. And here now we're told that the temple will be destroyed. What does that mean? Children, do you remember when the Ark of the Covenant, which was that piece of furniture that was in the most holy place, that symbolized the throne of God. There was no image of God, which is important. But it did symbolize His throne, over which there was nothing but the angels, as it were, bowing their heads, and the Shekinah glory manifesting. And when the Ark was taken, what word was pronounced? It was Ichabod, right? 
glory is gone. God has left us. He's withdrawn His presence from us. Is that what's going on here with the destruction of the temple? We'll revisit for a moment what Daniel says. Messiah shall come. He shall be cut off, so he'll be killed. Then the temple will be destroyed. But then it says of the Messiah, He shall confirm the covenant. He shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. So think of this for a moment. The one who's cut off is still doing things, right? The Messiah who's put down and is brought to death is now, after his death, alive and is working things out. So this is a shadowy, but nonetheless a certain testimony of the resurrection of the Messiah. That as he would be put to death, he would likewise rise again. And it was he, the Messiah, that should cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. So what's being said here is that this is foretold from Daniel, and we could find other passages, but it's also being foretold that it's not fundamentally the wicked king doing it. It's the Messiah bringing all of the shadow to an end. Now this is important for a number of reasons, but this is why in one way, notice how Christ says regarding this temple, as for these things which ye behold, do you see that? The things which you're looking at, the things which now enamor you, You're attracted to the beauty of the building, the wonder and the order of the sacrifices. Those things are going to be destroyed. But he doesn't say the message is going to be destroyed. He doesn't say the reality is going to be destroyed. Children, some of you have learned to ride bikes. Others of you will learn to ride a bike. But you typically start with something with training wheels. Now, the day that training wheels comes off, that can be a great difficulty, not just for the child, but for the parents. But when the child learns to ride the bike without training wheels, they have no interest in getting the training wheels back on. Why? Because the training wheels were supporting what was lacking until greater ability, strength, and maturity came around. Right? So, what happens with the removal of training wheels is greater skill, maturity, and strength now is exercised to use the bicycle uh, in greater uh, versatility. Well, similarly, the whole of the Old Covenant, we can think of it with reverence, is the Lord caring for His church in the state of its childhood. This doesn't mean that there aren't mighty men and women of faith in the Old Covenant, but it does mean that the Lord is giving them supports to point out things and to say, let's understand this. But when the day of the fullness of time came and Christ foretold arrives and He accomplishes all things, now it's time for the training wheels to come off. Now it's time for the support for children to be removed. And that's what's going on. And it's telling, isn't it, that it had to be done forcibly. That it wasn't willingly left go, let, let go of, but it must be forcibly removed. Well, this is what's going on in the removal of the temple. Notice the two things linked. Christ's death, Daniel 9, and the destruction of the sanctuary, Daniel 9. Well, what's telling as well is Christ has been on and on about this very fact. We must go to Jerusalem for what reason? 
that I, the Son of Man, should be delivered in the hands of sinners, put to death, and on the third day rise again. So he's frequent in that message. And so the astute and listening worshiper should have reasoned, well, if the Messiah is about to be cut off, that means soon enough there's going to be the destruction and overthrow of this building, the sanctuary. So the removal of the temple is not firstly the removal of its message or its truth, but it's the removal of its outward glory, which in God's purpose was so ordered to support the church in its infancy. This comes with a number of uh, applications to us. You are in the state of the church of its maturity. You are an adult in the whole testimony and lineage of the church. Now, this isn't speaking about your physical age. It's not speaking about, as it were, you know, where you stand with reference to birthdays. It's rather a message with reference to the church in its infancy and its necessary supports in its childhood versus the church in its maturity and its withdrawing of those necessary supports that were there for its infancy. So what does that mean? The church today is in a place that it should be stronger, is in a place where it should be more filled with faith and hope and love, which should be more fixed upon the invisible things that are not seen with our eyes, but is rather known by faith. Does this mean that there was no faith under the Old Testament? Most surely not. Just as this doesn't mean that there are no outward supports, but they are greatly reduced, aren't they? So you think about what God has given us in His worship. He's given us sacraments, but they're drastically reduced compared to the number under the Old Testament. So we have baptism and the Lord's Supper. We have one day granted recurring for worship, which is the Sabbath day. It's not a ceremonial day. It's that morally established and divinely established day every week returning. So cast off from us are all the Jewish days and all of their observances. Cast off from us are all of those ceremonies under the Old Covenant. And maintained to us are the more simple and straightforward aspects of God's worship. So notice, for instance, if you go back to John 4. This is all of what Christ is speaking of when He's contrasting Old Covenant with New Covenant worship. He says to this woman, the Samaritan woman, regarding the place of worship, notice verse 20 of uh, John 4, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Notice what Jesus says. Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Brethren, consider this for a moment. Christ is identifying a great transition. And yet, increasingly in our day, there is a call to return to the ceremonies of the Old Testament. And this happens astoundingly in so-called Reformed churches. Well, you know, they had incense, 
we're not we're not being Roman Catholic. We're being you know understanding of man's nature. We need sensible support so we can have incense. They did things with ceremonies, so we need ceremonies. And those are the kinds of arguments that go forth, all of which are neglecting this great transition that has taken place, where the training wheels have been taken off, the ceremonies have been removed, and the simplicity of New Testament, New Covenant worship has been established. But why, children, what are the two things connected? It's Christ's death and resurrection and the destruction of the temple, which was this edifice, this massive testimony of the old covenant. And it's obliterated, it's removed, it's uh, taken down. Not, however, to the end that the message of the temple should be removed. Now, before moving on to the third point, under now still secondly the removal of the temple, notice what was a common temptation for the Jews. You see this in Jeremiah chapter 7. So a similar season had come upon the Jews of trial and affliction. Captivity is all around. And notice what is mentioned in Jeremiah 7 and at verse 2. There's this testimony, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all ye of Judah that enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. So it's talking about the temple. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. So notice it's again reiterating the need for repentance. And what's the warning? Verse 4. Trust ye not in lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. What's being said? There was a presumption because of the temple that all was well with Israel. We're not going to be destroyed, Jeremiah, because look, the temple's here. We're not going to be destroyed because look, Jeremiah, all that's going on here. Whose place is this, Jeremiah? And Jeremiah, of course, would have had to say it's Jehovah's place. But here's the missing part that they didn't understand. If a holy and gracious God was dwelling there, what should the people be like who are dwelling with the holy and gracious God? But they should be holy and gracious. And see, they had missed out on the whole of their purpose. So where does that leave us? It leaves us with the Lord removing that stumbling block and forcing an attention to the cause of Christ. So this then leads us to consider, thirdly, the continuation of uh, the temple, which is not in the physical structure, but rather it is in Christ Jesus Himself. Think of it this way, children, you'll know this. One of the false accusations brought against Christ was this. He said... If you destroy this temple, what will happen? In three days, He'll repair it. He'll restore it. If you destroy this temple, He'll restore it. Remember the Jews stumble at this and they say, you know, are you greater? You know, this was years in the making. Shall you rebuild this temple in three days? And he's, He's making the point. I'm not talking about that physical temple. I'm talking about this temple. Now, why is this important? this connection. It's because Christ is indeed the fulfillment of the temple of God. 
in the highest sense, we can say this, Christ is the temple. Notice what's said, for instance, what is said in John chapter 1. At the beginning, we have it stated this way. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. So this is speaking of Christ Jesus. He is God. He made all things. He has created all things. And now, verse 11, He came unto His own. Verse 14, The Word, the very same Word which is God, was made flesh. And the Word is that He dwelt among us. Literally, He tabernacled among us. Who is it that is with us? Children, you remember that Jesus in Matthew 1 is said, he's, he's to be named Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. But He's also said to be Emmanuel, which is what? God with us. So here's the point. The fullness of what the temple was holding forth is come. There's no more need for the shadow and the sign that was pointing to His coming. God is dwelling with us. That's the temple. God is holy and gracious. That's the temple. God has come to dwell with us. That's the temple. Well, what is Christ? Christ is God who has come to dwell with us. Christ is God most holy. Christ is God most gracious. Christ is God who has come to gather a people unto Himself. And so, whereas the disciples would have been dismayed and rightly asked, you know, when is this going to happen? Christ almost with nonchalance says, these stones are going to be cast down. There's not going to be a stone left among another, on top of another. But He doesn't say, you know, therefore everything's over. You know, instead, He's directing them to Himself. And this is why in His counsel, He's saying, listen, there's hard times coming. Because the way that this temple would be destroyed was by a pagan king coming, destroying Jerusalem, tearing down the temple, all of which was tremendously sad and grievous. None of which overthrew the fact that God is most holy, God is most gracious, and God is desiring to commune with us all through Jesus Christ. Christ is the perfect message of the temple. So the substance, in other words, the thing to which the shadow was pointing remains. So you can think of it this way, children. Right now you can look up and you see a tent over your head. And you can look out and you can see a shadow right here. Well, if it started raining, it would do no good to stand in the shadow and not under the tent. You wouldn't stand under the shadow and say, we're going to be dry because, well, the shadow's over us. You have to come under the reality of the tent. The tent shelters us. Well, this is the point of the whole message of the temple. It's not the building. The building is not the thing, but the Jews had made it the thing. The Jews had said, this is the main thing. But Christ is saying, I am the main thing. This building is going to be destroyed. It's just a shadow. If you try to stay under the shadow, that's no shelter. I'm the shelter. I'm the Savior. I'm the God who has come down, dwelt among you, and called you to Myself. I'm the one who has come to save sinners. I'm the one who is most holy against whom you've sinned. And yet I'm the one who shelters you. Think of Song of Solomon so beautifully stated that our beloved is like an apple tree 
that He brings us under His shade and He feeds us. You ever thought, you know, there's actually an apple tree just over here. The apple tree is exposed to the elements. And yet here, Christ is likened to an apple tree under whom we come. And we find shelter under Him. And yet He bears all of the, uh, the elements upon Himself. What does that fundamentally point out? The wrath of God is poured out upon Christ while we sit comfortably under His protection and shelter. The wrath of God is poured forth upon the God-man while all who take refuge in Him have fellowship by grace together with Him. Notice how this comes out throughout the Scriptures. We don't have time to go much further, but notice at 1 John, this is, of course, John's great appeal. When he says, listen, what we've declared to you is of the person of the Son of God incarnate. Notice 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, of the word of life. Keep that in your mind. This one whom we've seen and touched is the word of life. He's the word of God incarnate. He's been manifested. We bear witness. We show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. What's the declaration of the Gospel? Christ the Son of God has come. Christ truly is incarnate. And as the incarnate Son of God did all of these things recorded of Him, most notably dying on the cross and rising again. And yet He's done this in order to gather us unto Himself, to find refuge under Him, to find salvation in Him, to find life eternal in fellowship with the Father and with His Son. It's distancing us from all concern of the outward elements of the temple. It's removing us from all the concern of the shadows of the Old Testament. This is part of Hebrews' point, when in Hebrews 10, not specifically, or only speaking of the temple, but speaking of, rather, the whole Old Covenant economy, says the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things. We have no doubt, but it would be a desire to have seen the temple, to wonder at it, to look at it. We love looking at, for instance, models of the temple and seeing what it may have looked like and you know, how did it all fit together. And it would have been nice to have seen the temple and just get that picture. But we're not worse off for never having seen the temple. In fact, we're far better for having heard of Christ. Christ is the message of the temple. Christ who reconciles us to God. Christ who is the sacrifice that was offered in the temple. Christ who is the priest who ministered in the temple. Christ who is the temple Himself. God dwelling with us. The whole message of the Gospel is a message fundamentally saying Christ is all and all that we need. Well, brethren, as we close, here is a needed reminder why it is we reject a return to Old Covenant symbolism. It's because Christ rejects it. Christ is the one who turned it over. 
Christ is the one who ordered all of these things and said, no more. But it's more than that He's rejected it. It's that He has come as the fulfillment of its message. He is the reality. You know, can we imagine a, a husband or a wife saying, you know, to their, their spouse, I wish we were just back in dating. I, I wish we weren't married anymore. You know, let's go back to living as if we didn't live together. Let's go back. We'll see each other every once in a while. We'll come together and go on out to a meal. But, let, you know, let's not have any of the benefits, any of the privileges, any of the supports, any of the joy of marriage. You know, that sounds obscene because it is. To return back to that state? Why? You'd be forsaking the whole purpose of the dating and courting relationship. It's moving toward the fulfillment of marriage. And when marriage is then enjoyed, there's no desire to go back to a state of not being married. Well, so it is with the church. The whole purpose of the Old Covenant, including the temple, is anticipating the coming of Christ. And when Christ comes, no one should say, well, you know, we're sort of at a loss because we don't have all the ceremonies in the temple and all these ornate structures. No, we have the very substance, the cream, the essence of what all those things are pointing to because we have Christ. This is, of course, an encouragement to you and to me in our day. Believer... You have all that the priests, all that the prophets, all that the Old Testament worshipers anticipated and longed for. If you can line up Moses, Elijah, and all of the great men and women of the Old Testament and ask them, are you in a better place or are we? With unison, they would shout out, you are far more privileged. Because what we anticipated and longed for, you have, you enjoy. These things were shadows. You have the reality. So brethren, in God's providence, He's placed you at the best time of redemptive history. In general speaking of the new covenant, He's placed you in the mature time of redemptive history. He's given you this great privilege. This is why Christ is able to say, you know, of John the Baptist, there's no prophet greater than John. But he that is least in the kingdom of God, not contradicting the Old Testament, but under the New Covenant, is greater than John. Why? Because John was anticipated. He didn't get to see the death of Christ. He didn't get to see the risen Christ. He didn't get to experience the New Covenant broken forth and held forth to them. But you have you have a greater privilege standing in the church than John the Baptist, than Moses, than Abraham, than all before. God has reserved privileges for each of you, nameless to the world, nameless perhaps to many in the church, but in God's great delight. He said, this one will be born at this time in the light of the gospel to enjoy all of these privileges. This is God's care for you. Brethren, does that not then come with some degree of an earnest call? If God has so privileged me, should I not then be diligent to search out the things of this privileged standing? If you went to a mansion and the tour guide of the mansion said, you know what, you know, you didn't put your name into this or whatever, but it's a gift 
the owners, they've decided to give up on this, and you happen to be the thousandth person visiting, and they said, I gifted to the thousandth visitor, it's theirs free and clear, here it is. You go to an attorney, you're like, is this legitimate? Like, is this mansion now mine? Yeah, it's yours. It's gifted to you. It's free. You didn't wager for it. You didn't buy it. It's just gifted to you, free and clear. And you wouldn't say, well, this great mansion, you know, I, I'm just going to keep this piece of paper that says it's mine and live in my dinky house. No, you'd be with earnestness and delight exploring all of the rooms, the wings and the acreage and the orchards and all that's around it with delight, wondering at all that is now freely yours. Well, brethren, to you has been given the inheritance of the saints in the new covenant. And so ought it not be with wonder that we give ourselves to the searching out of every nook and cranny that is now open to us of Christ Jesus. But finally, note this. Simply being under the new covenant brings with it no blessing. Rather, just as under the old covenant, there were blessings missed out because of no faith, so under the new covenant, blessings will be missed out if there is no faith. As the message is pointing us to Christ, so then we must take hold of Christ if ever to enjoy these riches that the temple held forth. If we're to enjoy fellowship with a holy and gracious God, it will only be through Christ. If we're to enjoy peace of conscience, increase of grace, joy in the Holy Ghost, it will only be in Christ. It's not in our gathering here tonight under this tent, or today under this tent. It's not in our going into that building if opened. It's not in all of these outward things. It's rather in embracing the message of Christ, crucified and risen. And here's the certainty that those who so embrace Christ have fellowship with God. God is yours in terms of peace by the blood of Christ and shall ever be yours and you His. All because God had ordered it so and made known to you the truth of Christ Jesus. So what's the message of the destroyed temple, the shadow? It's that the true temple stands. It's that those who trust in Christ are as lively stones, living stones built in Christ to enjoy fellowship with God. Live not beneath your privileges, Christian. Have your mind opened by the reading of God's Word, the study of the same, to the privileges which are yours. And embrace those to live in fellowship by the blood of Christ as children of the living God. Would you stand with me for prayer?